I think people who don't care about the coronation will simply find something else to do on Saturday. We will spend quite a lot of money at next weekend on the Eurovision Song Contest. You know, it's a great big circus which will entertain some people and which, which will annoy a tiny minority of people and which the overwhelming majority of people will simply ignore. But I think that uh, a lot of people will see the coronation and the Eurovision Song Contest in much the same light. That was Adam Tompkins, a former Republican-turned-monarchist and MSP with a unique view on royalty. And we'll get him to explain that analogy in full a little later. Hello, and welcome to The Stushy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode I'm joined by Adele Merson to look at the latest in Scottish politics and how it affects you. It would be a bit odd to ignore the current focus on the new King too, so we roped in Adam Tompkins for a chat with reporter Justin Bowie. He has a fascinating background. He was a lefty Republican, moved to the centre-right, discovered he didn't mind the royals after all. He's been a thorn in the side of the government and sometimes his own Conservative Party at Holyrood when he was there. And he's an academic at Glasgow University. So who better to take a look at Scotland's tricky, messy, odd relationship with the British royal family? We'll bring you that discussion shortly. I'd also point out we'll be publishing a much longer read, including an interview with Tom Devine, one of Scotland's most respected historians on that wider subject, online on Sunday 7th of May. We'll also bring you a few thoughts today from avowed Republican Maggie Chapman, a Green MSP for the North East region. And Adele and I will talk through the highs and lows elsewhere, including an SNP rebellion over fishing ban plans around Scotland and Hamza Yousaf's new vision for tackling poverty. Let's start at the beginning with our featured interview, though. Justin started by asking Adam Tompkins about his evolving views on the monarchy. Thanks for joining us today, Adam. First of all, I'm interested in asking you about your background in in terms of how you perceive the monarchy. You were obviously from more of a Republican background, but now you're a bit more pro-monarchy in your leanings. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of your views. Yeah, yeah, I think it's right uh, to say that my views have evolved um, over time. And principally, they've evolved, I think, because uh, the monarchy matters much less now than it used to. Um, And and the reason why I say that is because, you know, I come at this primarily from the perspective of a lawyer. Constitutional law is is what I teach uh, at the University of Glasgow. Constitutional law is what I have been teaching now for for a very long time. And when I started teaching constitutional law, um, the crown and its power um, still made, I think, a material difference. And uh, it just doesn't anymore. It has become much less important um, in in every way except perhaps um, the symbolic way. So... You know, the ceremony still matters and the symbolism still matters, but there's no real power there. And there's not even any real influence, I don't think, behind the scenes. And that's a relatively recent phenomenon. So I I suppose my attitude to the monarchy has evolved over the course of the last two or three decades, because the reality is that the monarchy just doesn't, it just doesn't matter as much anymore. So it's not worth getting very excited about. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why um, the monarchy, which many people think of as being very anachronistic, um, survives. It survives because, you know, as I keep saying, it doesn't. It just doesn't really matter much anymore. In terms of wider attitudes, there's some interesting polling recently that's come out from YouGov, which suggests that in the UK as a whole, the public is still widely supportive of monarchy. In Scotland, there is still support there, but it's not as strong. 
but there is a lot less support among the younger age cohorts. Where do you see the future of the monarchy in terms of its popularity in the UK? Do you think it's kind of in a long-term decline or for the reasons that you've stated, do you think the monarchy will continue to endure because it's seen as more symbolic than it perhaps was in the past and it's not interfering in everyone's everyday life? I think it will continue to evolve. Um, and, you know, that there has always been um, a relationship between the monarchy and the people. Uh, and uh, the people react to the evolution of the monarchy and the monarchy um, evolves in light of its perceptions of how the people are responding to it. It's not a static thing. I mean, the monarchy obviously represents continuity rather than change. Um, but the only way in which it has a been able to survive all of these centuries is by changing really rather, rather a lot. And anybody with a sense of history uh, will know that the monarchy now means something very different from what it meant uh, you know, uh, in Queen Victoria's era, and that it meant something very different again from what it meant in the Stuart era of the 17th century or the Tudor era of the 16th. I mean, you know, the, the, taking the long view, which is the only view you can coherently take of the monarchy, it changes all the time. And I think that the relationship between uh, the monarchy and the people of the United Kingdom, the people of all four nations of the United Kingdom, will continue, will continue to uh, evolve. If the monarchy doesn't continue to adapt, then it will become brittle and it will collapse. But I think that's extremely unlikely. I think that the uh, much more likely scenario is that the monarchy will continue to adapt and evolve in the light of its understanding of the changing mores and needs and requirements and ambitions of, 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 the, of the people. Uh, in terms of right now, in 2023, I just don't think it's very near the top of anybody's list of priorities, is it? I mean, we're much more concerned about the cost of living. We're much more concerned about the state of public services. We're much more concerned about um, uh, economic well-being and our economic future. We're much more concerned about jobs and schools and hospitals and all of that than we are um, about the monarchy. And even within the sort of field of um, uh, constitutional conversations, it's not exactly top of the list, is it? In Scotland, obviously, the, the issue that's dominated our constitutional thinking for the last decade and a half has been the question of Scottish independence, uh, not the question of the monarchy. Uh, and uh, uh, south of the border, again, I think people have, when they think about the constitution at all, they think about things other than uh, the, the future of the crown or the future of the monarchy. And the final thing I'd say on this is that, you know, I don't think the monarchy is um, ever likely uh, to come under serious threat unless and until um, a better alternative is put to people. Um, and uh, the reason why I think the monarchy endures beyond all others is because there's, there's never been a kind of coherent plan as to what, um, what, what should replace it. I mean, what do we want the head of state to do if we don't want the head of state to be a ceremonial figure um, who you know, may as well inherit the job? Um, if we want the head of state to do something different from that, what is it that we want the head of state to do? And, and, and how should we go about trying to identify that person? Should the person be elected? Should they be elected for life? Should they be, uh, should it be an office which is um, open to re-election? If so, what are the, what should the term be? Should there be a term limit? Nobody, you know, nobody knows the answers to any of these uh, questions. Um, uh, and nobody's ever really put a serious alternative. So, um, I think all of these are reasons why the monarchy will continue to endure. I would be very surprised to see the end of the monarchy in, in my lifetime. 
It's interesting you say that because when you look at polling as well, it suggests uh, there's a lot of apathy in regards to the coronation this weekend. A lot of people ne don't necessarily care. But do you almost see that perhaps as a positive thing? And along a similar light, given the cost of living crisis, it may be that people are more focused on that. But could it not be argued that you know, you know the coronation is almost a little bit of a waste of money? It's, it's a lot of money to spend on something that people don't seem to be that concerned about? Um. I, I just don't think that argument is going to land at all. Um, I, I think people who don't care about the coronation will simply find something else to do on Saturday. Um, you know, we, we spend an awful lot of money on all sorts of things. Um, we will spend quite a lot of money at next weekend on the Eurovision Song Contest. You know, it's a great big circus which will entertain some people and which, which will annoy a tiny minority of people and which the overwhelming majority of people will simply ignore and get on with their lives. Um, uh, and I, I, I think... That, 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 that you know, perhaps it's not um, being particularly loyal uh, to His Majesty the King, but I think that uh, a lot of people will see the coronation and the Eurovision Song Contest in much the same light. It's a very interesting point. In relation to your own party and conservatism, I see you were quite critical of the idea of you know, people swearing their allegiance to the king and doing so very, very vocally. At the same degree, you know, the Conservatives, I suppose, are oft, have often been seen as the sort of most pro-monarchy mainstream party. The other parties, whether it be Labour or the SNP, will have sort of anti-monarchy elements to different degrees. Do you think your, your party is the only one that can be trusted to preserve monarchy? But along similar lines, do, do you think the Conservatives need to be careful to not be seen as too gung-ho when it comes to talking up the monarchy? Uh, no, I, I don't think the, the Conservatives are the only uh, pro-monarchy party. It might be true that they're the most uh, pro-monarchy party, but I, I mean, the idea that um, uh, Labour Prime Ministers such as uh, Sir Tony Blair or potentially uh, future Labour Prime Ministers such as Sir Keir Starmer pose a threat to the uh, monarchy, I think is um, completely uh, unrealistic. But why, why is swearing allegiance to the King a silly idea? It's a silly idea because... Uh, allegiance is not something which subjects have ever owed to an overlord without the overlord owing something to the subjects in return. In other words, allegiance has always been reciprocal. It's never been a one-way street. Um, and in the past, in the distant past, um, uh, uh, subjects owed allegiance to the king because it was the king who protected the security of those subjects. It was the king who was the defender of the realm as well as the defender of the faith. Um, these days, of course, the people who keep us safe are the armed forces and the secret, um, secret intelligence and security services. Um, and we think of security with regard to the state as much as being about social security as we do about national security. And the people who provide that sort of security are, of course, the government um, spending taxpayers' money on welfare benefits, and so on and so forth. And the way in which we exhibit our allegiance to all of that is by voting in democratic elections, by paying our taxes, and by abiding by the laws. So we owe allegiance as citizens to the state, but we no longer owe allegiance as subjects uh, to the king because the king doesn't perform any role in keeping us safe, in making us secure, neither national security nor social security are you know within the job description of the king to provide they're provided uh, um, on the country's behalf by uh, others so the idea of we should stand in front of our television sets on saturday 
lunchtime and uh, swear allegiance to a broadcast image of His Majesty the King is just, um, it's not only offensive, it's also profoundly unhistorical. And nobody who has any historical sense um, of what the monarchy is or even of what the idea of allegiance is uh, would uh, be um, w- would be caught in such a daft and tin-eared idea. But given that view, given some conservative politicians have perhaps indicated that this is a good idea, is that the type of thing that, if pushed by governments of, of any you know of, of any side, whether it be Labour or Conservative, is that the type of thing that perhaps could put people off the monarchy and make them feel that it's too politicised and that it's interfering with their life a bit more than they would like? No, I think the appropriate reaction to this rather daft idea is to laugh at it. Um, let's not take it very seriously. Uh, let's, it, it, there will be a small minority of people that will very kind of pompously want to stand and perhaps even salute uh, in, in front of their television sets and formally declare their allegiance to His Majesty. Fine, if that's what they want to do, I have no objection to it whatsoever and certainly wouldn't want to stop them. Uh, but I, I won't be doing it and I don't think any of the people that I'll be watching the coronation with on Saturday will be doing it either. And something else which you may think to be a bit of a, a daft idea as well, but there's been a bit of a row over the Stone of Destiny. Obviously, you know, it was taken down for the coronation. You had Alistair Jack standing guard. We have had Alex Salmond indicating that it shouldn't have been taken from Scotland. Is, is this a, you know, a row that you think is of interest? Or is, is there historical importance here? Or is it just a sort of nonsense? Is it just a distraction? Uh, it is exactly that. It's just a nonsense. And look, you know, there are... There are people like Mr. Salmond who try and stir the pot, don't they, from time to time? And there, wasn't there a movie about somebody stealing the Stone of Destiny a few years ago that was quite, quite, quite amusing? And and every now and then people will try and, you know, um, reheat these stories or regenerate these stories as if this has got anything at all to do with people's Scottish identity or people's British identity. I mean, the vast majority of people in the country have no idea what the Stone of Destiny is. Um, I don't think it's a problem that the vast majority of people in the country have no idea what the Stone of Destiny is. And actually, it's probably a sign of, um, uh, um, if not madness, then at least of um, um, obsessive disorder um, for anybody to get hot under the collar about the Stone of Destiny or indeed any other stones. And as a last question, obviously you expect that the monarchy will endure, you expect it will continue to be popular. Given it's a bit less popular in Scotland and given those younger voters especially are, are not particularly pro-monarchy, do you think it's something do you think the image of the monarchy can be improved in Scotland long term? Do you think those younger voters will, maybe like yourself, as they grow older, either become more apathetic or more positive about the monarchy? Or do you think those differences between Scotland and the rest of the UK will continue to remain quite pronounced? No, I, I do think that the monarchy needs to needs to work hard, needs to continue to work hard, and probably needs to work harder um, to show why it is of relevance uh, to people in all four nations of the United Kingdom, older people and younger people uh, alike. And it cannot, as it were, rest on laurels or take anything for granted or assume uh, that just because it's endured for centuries, it's going to continue to endure for centuries. And the, the you know, the, the 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 people who knew that most clearly were the late Queen uh, and uh, her late husband, uh, the uh, then Duke of Edinburgh. And I, I, I think and I hope that they have bequeathed that sense uh, to their children and to the current King. And I, I hope that he will pass it down uh, to his children and grandchildren. But I think there is a lot of work to do. But look, you know, the the Duke of Edinburgh scheme uh, is a, a a real thing that makes a material difference to people's lives. 
The Prince's Trust, founded when he was Prince of Wales by the current king, is a real thing that makes a material difference to people's lives that, that we might have had without the monarchy. But the fact is that we have them as a direct result of the uh, contributions that senior members of the royal family have made uh, in British public life in my lifetime, in your lifetime, in, in, in our lifetimes. And that needs to continue and continue to be manifest. And the, the, the point of criticism I would have is that while I think the present king did an awful lot in that direction when he was Prince of Wales, uh, the Prince's Trust is just one of many examples, the current Prince of Wales, Prince William, has yet really to do anything, so far as I can see. Yes, he served uh, in the armed forces, uh, and he made a significant contribution in the armed forces, as did his uh, brother, of course, as have many members of the royal family. Uh, but since um, he left the armed services, I'm not sure that Prince William has really done anything very much, frankly, um, to make his contribution yet um, to bringing the relevance of the monarchy up to date uh, for uh, future generations. And I think there's quite a big burden on his shoulders to do so. I enjoyed that. That was Adam Tompkins talking um, in possibly the most critical way I think I've ever heard for someone who is a monarchist. Adele, did you enjoy that? There was a lot of food for thought. Yes, that was a, that was a good interview, um, particularly the salute part. <laughs> Just picturing people doing that. Yeah. I know. It's, uh, he paints an image. People may decide to salute even. Uh, I enjoyed his... Um, his assessment of the, the Stone of Destiny row, which, of course, um, just for those who wanted to know a little bit more about that one, in midweek, just before we record today, Alex Salmon said that if he were still in charge as First Minister, he would have put a ring of steel around Edinburgh Castle, by which he means police officers, uh, to prevent the stone being taken from the castle and sent down to, to London for the coronation. The Stone of Destiny, of course, being a big lump of rock that used to sit underneath the throne, or I guess, uh, in Scotland for coronations of, of, of Scots royalty. And it was taken by Edward I a gazillion years ago. And it's still causing questions and debate to this day. Um, all very good. Now, Adele, he mentioned how he's a, a pro-monarchist, but with a lot of friendly fire there too. Um, and he made a strange analogy which caught my attention anyway, where he said that this is all a big circus, but it's effectively no different to the Eurovision Song Contest, which um, I'm sure you'll be watching next weekend. Are you watching the coronation? <laughs> I'll definitely be watching the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm, I'm not too sure. I think I have plans on, on the coronation day, so I don't, I don't think I'll be tuning into that. But uh, yeah, an interesting comparison there. And also noted that he said, you know, the reason that a lot of people will just... Well, just ignore it is because they have more more things to worry about, whether it be their jobs or the cost of living crisis. In where you are, Adele, in Aberdeen, is obviously a, a very strong royal tradition, uh, royal deeside, Balmoral, and everything that goes along with it. Um, you mentioned the Duke of Edinburgh had strong ties to the area. In parts of Scotland, there'll be some antipathy, and in some parts, like the northeast, there's going to be. A lot more interest in this. Do you do you know of any street parties and things like that, or do you think that Adam Tompkins' uh, appraisal of the whole thing as being well, that doesn't matter so much. It might be a bit of fun. There might be the odd party here and there. Do you detect much in the way of a, a groundswell of support of people wanting to really get involved in Scotland? I mean, just anecdotally, 
I have quite a few friends down in London and I've certainly got more of the impression that it's it's a big deal, more of a big deal down there, you know, kids' nurseries. And to be fair, I'm not sure what kids' nurseries are doing up here, but it certainly seems like they're, uh, you know, kids are having Union Jack flags outside. And my friend did say that they had two street parties organised in her kind of local area, but I think they've actually maybe been called off because of predicted rain so i don't know how pe- strongly people feel of their cancelling it due to the weather but that is not a keep calm and carry on at all <laughs> up here I've, I've noticed certainly in the past with with other royal occasions that there's quite a difference you don't you don't actually see much within the city of aberdeen but if you go out to sort of royal d side as you mentioned there the likes of balloter i imagine will have something planned for saturday it'll be quite a big deal up there because prince charles loves to go there. I think he was visiting a restaurant opening up there quite recently. And I'm sure they'll have they'll have celebrations taking place in, in other parts of Royal D side. But yeah, I don't I don't really get the sense that there's huge excitement. There's maybe excitement at getting a day off work or whatever, but I d I don't get the sense that people are are planning all that much. But that that's just my kind of take on it. Maybe it depends who you who you associate with and who you're yeah. friends with. Yeah, and and as Justin was pointing out in in the piece there, there's a lot of polling out there at the moment, and there there is a a solid base of people who just support the monarchy, but don't need to, I guess, make a fuss about it. Um, I mean, there's people who are very opposed, and people who will be just as vociferous in support, but most people probably just think that's just the way it is. There's a king, uh, there was a queen, we yeah, have a royal family. I probably agree with this assessment there that the overriding feeling seems to be that people. Or neither up or down. They're maybe just, it's just one of those, one of those things that we associate with Britain that, mm-hmm. that kind of goes along in the background, and, and people aren't necessarily. I mean, obviously, you do get people that get very angry about it, and very opinionated about it, but in general, it's just kind of one of those things that that we've come to accept as, I guess, part yeah. of part of the UK. Yeah, uh, one person who we spoke to today um, for today's program, who is definitely on the other side of the fence from Adam Tompkins. Um, is Maggie Chapman. She is a regional North East MSP for the Green Party. And she also spoke to Justin about her view on the relationship with royals. So, Maggie, why do the Greens support a republic? Why do you want to abolish the monarchy? So the Scottish Greens is a very clearly republican party. We believe that our leaders should be elected and that they should be directly accountable to the people that they serve. We know that the monarchy is the antithesis of that. To be born into leadership, to be born into that kind of power is not democratic. It's very, very clear that the monarchy doesn't have accountability to the people. There is no line of responsibility in that democratic sense. And as a Republican, I believe, and my party believes very, very, very firmly that we need democratic and elected heads of state. Are you confident that we will see an end to the monarchy in your lifetime? Oh, that's a big question. Honestly, I don't know. I hope so. I hope so. I hope that we see a very, very clear shift towards democratising our society, democratising our politics, democratising how we understand power. And that doesn't just mean giving all of the privileges and powers that currently reside in the monarch as head of state to to governments, to a president, to, to, to anything like that. I think it's an opportunity for us to rethink what we mean by democracy. How do we get power to people? How do we empower communities to take the decisions 
that most affects their lives, to have the resources, have the facilities, have the support to make those decisions in an informed and supported way. I think that actually is the opportunity open for us to redefine what we mean by democracy, what we want a 21st century democratic republic to look like. That's the power we have as we, we continue our discussions about independence, as we continue that discussion about the kind of Scotland we want to see going into the future, not one that looks back at centuries of privilege, centuries of pomp and ceremony, particularly now at a time when we know we're facing the, the worst cost of living crisis many people have ever experienced, to be spending that kind of money on pomp, privilege and, and ceremony, I don't think is appropriate. And I don't think the vast majority of people think it is either. Okay, there we go. That was Maggie Chapman. And before that was Adam Tompkins with a very rounded view all in on the, the strange relationship and difficult relationship sometimes we have with our constitutional monarchy. Now on to the, the meaty stuff. It's uh, it's not all about the coronation, of course. There's been a whole another week of Scottish politics. Uh, Adele and I have been watching that so that you don't have to. Um, I think two things caught our attention worth a little bit of a chat today because... Hamza Yousaf, obviously settling into the role now in difficult times, he had a bit of an SNP rebellion on the cards of one of his policies, uh, including some serious amateur dramatics from Fergus Ewing, um, who pops up on this show quite a lot. And of course, we also saw him trying to re-nose his way um, of tackling poverty. So let's start with the, the the first one, the SNP rebellion that he has to kind of deal with. Adele, you've looked at this quite a lot. This, of course, is the highly protected marine areas. Yes, highly protected marine areas was a major sort of talking point at Holyrood this week because there were two, two separate debates about the policy. Uh, the policy basically is that as part of the Butte House Agreement, which is the power sharing deal between the SNP and the Greens. The Scottish government is committed to introduce HPMAs over at least 10% of Scotland's seas. So these would basically be designated areas that are strictly protected to allow marine ecosystems to recover and thrive, ideally. But the backlash has been absolutely huge. They said, I think Hamza Yusuf's word was actually enormous. They'd had an enormous number of responses to a consultation about the plans. And I asked the government yesterday, they said they'd had about 4,000 responses. We obviously don't know whether these are positive or negative responses, but we can we can guess given the, the level of the backlash. So in terms of on Wednesday night, there was a debate. Now, this is obviously not to do with voting for or against the proposals, which are at a very early stage, but was an attempt by the Conservatives to, I guess, in many ways, put uh, put put the SNP in quite a difficult decision, put some of those coastal and island MSPs in a difficult position with their voters. So what we saw was the Conservative motion was to scrap scrap the scheme, basically, and start again. But we had Fergus Ewan, as you mentioned there, vote. He did not vote with the, with the government, with his party, and neither did Kate Forbes, or Alistair Allen, the Western Isles MSP. We obviously know that Kate Forbes, when she was running for leader, actually called for this scheme to be scrapped entirely. And I think she she's kind of softened her position a wee bit, perhaps, in recent days, saying mm -hmm. that she's not the leader now, so seems maybe a little bit more conciliatory, but you can tell she's still clearly angry about it on behalf of her constituents. And 
Alistair Allen, you know, he gave a speech in which he said, you know, he, he's a team player and it, it really was reluctantly that he decided not to vote with the government, but he'd been getting so much correspondence from islanders about what kind of impact these proposals could have yeah i mean it, it's it would be a big deal for someone who covers so many islands and of course there was the dramatics from fergus ewing i mean to for people who haven't seen it it's maybe if you're interested you can dig out this clip but he he stood in uh, on the back benches in parliament on tuesday night and waved around a copy of the proposals for these um, fishing bans and then proceeded to say that they should be used as a fire lighter or, or just basically bin it, and then he proceeded to rip it up into little pieces, much to Hamza Yousaf's delight. I think it's it's interesting just because this is the latest in, in what is now a line of policies mm. being brought forward that critics argue shows uh, perhaps a, more of a central belt focus, that the government is not understanding the more remote rural island sort of communities and that there's maybe this kind of top-down approach to policy making yeah. that isn't taking communities along. Fishermen feel that they haven't been consulted at an early enough stage. Yeah. I mean, the government reply saying, "But there's no, there's no sites yet. We we are consulting at a very early stage." There just seems to this policy has just got off to quite a disastrous start, and that there's clearly it's all become solidified. There's these 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 two camps, and I guess it's now yeah. about trying to bring people together. Wasn't this a classic case, though? Because we're having a huge argument where the SNP is under scrutiny. The Tories are trying to make hay with it. And some SNP members are having to fight local fires while standing up to their own government. It's not a good look when Hums is trying to be the the you know, the, the man who brings the, the party back together again. But there isn't any detail in the proposal in the first place. It's it's. I don't think anyone's ever ex- explained either why 10% was picked. There doesn't appear to be any thinking about the level they've started off. Um, Hamza Yousaf said he doesn't know where these areas will be, exactly what they'll do. So, I mean, you create a vacuum like that and it just gets filled with other people's opinions on what this policy might end up being. And before you know it, you've got arguments about scrapping it before it's even off the ground. It just seems such a bizarre way to go about it. Yeah, they've also said that in a kind of what seemed like quite an early concession, they've, they've already said that these, this policy will not be, I think, steamrolled, the, the kind of term they keep using, it won't be steamrolled or imposed on communities that are vehemently opposed to them. Yeah. But Douglas Ross at First Minister's Questions asked for what are the definitions of communities and what are the definitions of that level, of the level of opposition that they're looking for. And, and there is no detail on what that actually means. Yeah. And I think many of the island MSPs have said, who represent sort of highlands and islands, have said, there's no, as far as they're concerned, and as far as they've heard, there's no community that is putting their hands up to say that they that they want this policy. So, the governments immediately put themselves mm. in a difficult position there, where they've set their stall that they won't impose it on people, and yet it doesn't sound like there's very many communities lining up to be part of it. Yeah, of course you can you can listen back to your interview on a previous episode with um, a businesswoman from Tyree who talks about this from a personal experience and what this might be. So anyone who's interested in finding out more, I would encourage you to go back and and have a, and seek that one out. Now, we were also looking this week at Hamza Yousaf's attempt to take on a really difficult, big subject of tackling poverty with um, very constrained finances. It was it was fairly uh, bold position he's taken this week not one that's going to be an easy sell in his party either because he was talking about reprofiling perhaps or having a bit of a conversation about 
how we pay for universal services. Uh, in particular, we have free school meals. The suggestion being that primary school might continue to have free school meals, that might carry on, but there might be a discussion about where we stop. Do secondary schools get uh, universal free school meals? Of course, as soon as you open up any conversation about means testing or progressive taxation, someone somewhere will say, well, what about the NHS? Should we start paying for prescription fees more? Do do a lot of the sort of so-called middle-class bungs, do they need to be reassessed? Do people with more more money to, to spend have to spend more on public services? It's a, a big thorny issue for him to open this week, do you think, Adele? And do you think that the parliament is in a position where they might want to start talking about this kind of thing right now. Yeah, it seems a really tricky issue. As you say, I think there's two particular policies that the SNP prides itself on, which are not means tested, which should be university tuition fees and prescription fees. So I guess in starting this debate, you pre- I, think, I think they've actually committed to keeping both of those things as they are. Mm. So I think they have immediately seen the benefit in saying don't panic, we're not changing those. But I think it's interesting that yeah. it does open up that debate, as you say, to to what other things might become means tested yeah. that aren't at the moment. And yeah. I think in terms of the school meals, it's an interesting, I think he gave the example of his own experience of his 14-year-old daughter saying, you know, should people really be paying for her free school meals when he's on a first minister's salary? And I think anyone could see the kind of inconsistency there. But at the same time, I know there's been quite a lot of backlash, particularly around the school meals in the sense of there'll be many low-income families that just miss out on being means-tested. So you're not necessarily, you're obviously capturing people who are struggling the most, but you're not necessarily by any means capturing everybody that that is struggling at the moment. And there's also a whole debate yeah. around, I guess, some people feel a stigma associated with, you know, once you make it, non-means tested if you have to get your meal differently you know is there a feeling of shame or stigma around that and and that would be unfortunate if that was the case yeah yeah it's it certainly has opened a conversation again and it it some listeners with long memories uh, like mine will possibly have remembered while we were talking about that 10 years ago when scottish labor leader at the time joanne lament made much much the same kind of speech uh, where she said that Scotland can't be the only something-for-nothing country in the world. A choice of wording that caused her an enormous headache. Uh, if you look around that sentence, there was lots, very very similar sentiment to, to Hamza Yousaf, where she was talking about the need to target the money to tackle poverty, which made her want to reassess how much we focus on universal benefits and how much we should look at progressive taxation. So I was uh, speaking to Joanne Lama the other day as well, and she's um, she's agreed to sort of take a little trip down memory lane and, and re- revisit that speech and wonder about where we are now in the in the country when it comes to progressive taxation and public services with a diminished pot of cash to spend. Um, and you'll be able to read that on the PJ and Courier websites shortly. But that's it for this week. Thank you to Adele Merson, Justin Bowie, guests Adam Tompkins and Maggie Chapman, and producer Morvan McIntyre, and to you for listening. We'll be back next week, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands, so that you can be better briefed. <laughs> <laughs>